1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the replacement of the Ukrainian commander-in-chief Valery Zeluzhny with Oleksandr Suski looking in detail at their records, experience and views on the challenges ahead. We also dissect Vladimir Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson, asking not just what he said, but whether we actually learnt anything. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable Hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's
2: going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday the 9th of February, one year and 349 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is the Kiev Independence News Editor Nate Ostilla, calling in from Tbilisi, Georgia. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from
3: Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome, Nate. We'll leave um, Zaluznyi till a little bit later. First, the updates. So on drones, Russia's military says they shot down 19 Ukrainian drones over the Black Sea. And then the regions inside Russia, Bryansk, Krasnodar, Oryol, and Kursk Oblast. that comes from the Russia's MOD. Uh, They say Ukrainian drones hit two refineries, or sorry, they didn't say this. This was a source speaking to to the AFP, Agence France Press, a source in Kyiv's security services, said that uh, drones hit two refineries in Russia's southern Krasnodar region. That's go over the Kirsch Bridge, keep going, and you hit Krasnodar. And the source said these refineries are legitimate targets. Not only do they work for defence and provide fuel for Russian troops, but they are also important for the Russian economy. Uh, Separately, Ukraine said it had shot down 10 of 16 Russian drones fired. Those that got through damaged, uh, quote, exclusively civilian infrastructure, unquote, in the eastern Kharkiv region. That came from a regional military official. Ukraine's Air Force said Russia again were using the Iranian Shahid drones firing from Crimea and in the western Kursk region. In a statement they said, as a result of combat operations, 10 Shahids were destroyed in Mykolaiv, Hezon and Kharkiv regions. Now the next one, Ukraine is said to be facing a critical ammunition shortage. This comes from a senior US military official. Speaking to the Financial Times, this individual said, I will blame the congressional delay on the the funding, said it's creating an air bubble and a gap in the hose of supplies to Kyiv. The source said this is really as grave as we have been portraying it. This is a very grim scenario. It is a desperate situation on the front lines for the Ukrainians, far worse than they are letting on. That last came from a senior NATO diplomat. Then Mark Tice, Belgium's former deputy chief of defence, speaking to Politico, said it will take years for the EU to develop the arms an ammunition production capacity required to adequately arm Ukraine. He said, OK, cover the children's ears. He said, it's not a joke. We're in deep shit, especially in Belgium, but we're not the only ones. Ammunition is a symptom of a cultural problem within Europe. There's a lot of wishful thinking. People underestimate the time needed to realise projects. The industrial fabric in Europe isn't strong enough to support Ukraine. I'll point you to the plan from Estonia, that says four years, NATO members, four year commitment, a quarter of a percent of GDP each year committed over for each of four years. That will give a lot of money in each year. But it's the it's the, um, the four year commitment, knowing that they can start building infrastructure on the defence industrial base. That is the kind of plan needed here. And uh, obviously what Mark Tice is saying there is just a, a sort of symptom of the current situation. And then just finally in the updates, there has been a prisoner swap. Ukraine and Russia swapped 100 prisoners each last night. This is the first prisoner exchange since the, you remember, the IL-76 shot down last month. Russia said it had 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war on board, although they've not provided any evidence for that. President Zelensky said Ukraine returns its people and will make every effort to continue prisoner exchanges so that our people can come back home. Now, the United Arab Emirates claimed to have brokered the deal, the, the country's foreign ministry said it will continue to support efforts to find a, a peaceful solution to the war. That came from Arab News. And I'll take a pause there, David, because we, I know we've got a lot to get through.
1: Well, let's move on to the next big story from yesterday. General Valery Zaluzhny, the head of Ukraine's armed forces, has been sacked and replaced. Dom Nichols, can you take us through, first of all, the news, and then it'd be good to hear your analysis of what's happening at the top of Ukraine's military.
3: OK, so quickly, last night, President Zelensky dismissed General Zelensky as commander in chief of Ukraine's armed forces. It's the biggest military shakeup, uh, leadership shakeup of the war. This follows weeks of speculation. We've been covering it throughout that time. Zelensky praised Zelensky. Uh, he's only 50 years old, so you he's know, still got gas in the tank. But Zelensky said urgent changes were needed to revitalise the nation's battle-stricken forces. Zelensky did. He conferred the Hero of Ukraine Award, the highest national decoration in Ukraine, to Zelensky. And also, as an aside, to um, General Badanov head of military intelligence. But in his nightly video address to the nation last night, President Zelensky said, starting today... A new management team will take over the leadership of the armed forces of Ukraine. The year 2024 can be successful for Ukraine only if there are effective changes in the basis of our defence. A realistic, detailed action plan for the armed forces of Ukraine for 2024 should be on the table, taking into account the real situation on the battlefield now and the prospects. He promised or offered an unspecified role to Zeluzny to, quote, continue in the team. Now, alongside a picture of the two men shaking hands and smiling, General Zeluzny, he wrote on Telegram, he said, a decision was made about the need to change approaches and strategy. So not burning his bridges. I think that's, that's a reasonable thing, a reasonable position to adopt. Mikhailo um one of Mr Zelensky's top advisors, he then said the decision had been taken after the tactics of actions did not fully ensure proper results last year. For all the great success, basically, two years into this, and Ukraine is there, and, and and well, not just surviving, but in many areas thriving. But there's no escaping the results of the counteroffensive last year were not anywhere near what Ukraine were hoping for, and it looks like Zelensky is is wearing that. Now, the, the relationship between Zelensky and Zelensky had soured privately, yeah, ages ago. Firstly, over tactical difference around the Kharkiv counteroffensive in 2022. General Zelensky was said to have believed that it had little strategic benefit, d- despite the success of pushing Russia back. And then Bakhmut really sort of put a wedge between them. We are told tensions, you'll remember, really spilled out into the public last November when um, Zelensky described the war as a stalemate in an interview with the Economist. That statement was instantly derided by Mr. Zelensky and his camp, but it um, you know it, it, it set a bitter tone. Then around the same time, the president's office removed one of General Zelensky's deputies. They sacked the head of Ukraine's medical forces with almost no explanation. And then a month after that, Zelensky publicly rebuffed Zeluzny's plea f- uh, for another half a million soldiers. So the, in the wake of this, Vitali Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, He's, um, he's sort of keeping his powder dry, but he says President Zelensky must explain his decision to replace Zelensky with, with General Alexander Sursky, more of whom we're going to hear about in a moment. Klitschko called on the government to explain the move to the public in order to ensure Ukraine remains united at this critical stage of the war. Then, rather brilliantly, Dmitry Medvedev drained his glass and got stuck in. He called Sersky a traitor. Who has turned his back on the Soviet Union? Um, Sersky was born in in what was then the USSR uh, and served in the Soviet artillery corps before moving to Ukraine in the 1980s. But Medvedev said uh, said he felt a sense of hatred, contempt, and disgust at Sersky's appointment. He was um, he was rambling. So speaking on on Telegram, he said he had disgust for a man who was a Soviet Russian officer but became a Bandera traitor who broke his oath and serves the Nazis, destroying his loved ones, made the earth burn under his feet. Fine. Then, right, Professor David Silby, coming back down to earth now, a bit of sense here. Professor David Silby who's a military historian at Cornell University. He said that Zaluznyi had become the scapegoat, the poster boy, if you like, for the lack of recent military successes. He said generals in war are like managers in baseball David, baseball, I believe, is a sort of sport similar to cricket, but you rarely have to count over 10, which is very helpful. So generals in war, like managers in baseball, often blamed for things out of their control. Zaluzny seems to be taking the fall for the failure of Ukraine's fall offensive and Russia's retaking of the military initiative. Now, I've written today, I said, I think I think this all comes down to to trust. There had been a breakdown in trust between Zelensky and Zuluzni, and that is absolutely critical. There are two, two other areas to think of here in terms of trust, and that is firstly from the commander-in-chief down to the troops. Now Zaluzny had that. he was very popular amongst the troops. Sersky is seen as a bit um, a bit colder, if you like, a bit more calculated. He's supposed to be a very a, very much a details guy and to look much more dispassionately, I suppose it could be described than, than Zuluzni. So, you remember, it was talking about how Ukraine needs a a technological breakthrough, a technological leap to get ahead of Russia in this war. I think Sersky is much more, much more sort of old school, if you like. I mean, he was born in the Soviet Union. He seems a bit more from from the sort of cut from the same cloth as General George Patton, if you like. Second World War, known as old blood and guts, to give you the clue. Remember, he... Famously once said, no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor, dumb bastard die for his country. So I think Sersky comes out of that that side. Whether How that will go down with the troops is a question I'll come on to in a, in a moment. But no doubt, no doubting that Zeluzny was very, very popular. The third area that's worth looking at is the trust that's, that has to be there between Ukraine and external supporters, the West for shorthand. Now, we know Zaluzhny had a difficult relationship with Mark Milley, um, the chairman of the, then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the US, so no longer there, but he was the head of the, the US Armed Forces. And it was said that actually the interaction at that very senior level was done not through the top guys, but through their subordinates, which is not a good place to be, I have to say. The two top figures do need to be able to speak to each other. There was a feeling that Zaluzhny kept his plans Too close to his chest, and didn't allow the um, Western leaders and, and military chiefs much of a view, and they felt that they had a right to see more than they they were given, given all the material and military aid and training and intelligence support. And also, I mean, there is we've talked about the the risk of escalation to the point of nuclear the nuclear threshold. I mean, that is a live concern. And some people were getting very twitchy that that Zaluzny just didn't give them enough information upon which to gauge where they were on that sort of escalatory ladder. So that wasn't a great relationship. That has to be tighter. Maybe um, Sersky is going to be a bit more open. And I just think that, that the timing is interesting because that the first of those three relationships between the president and the chief of the armed forces has to be absolutely watertight now. We're not expecting huge movements on the ground in Ukraine of the next few months. Might be different in the air and the and the sea, but on the ground, not a huge movement. This year, we think is a is a year for training, rearming, equipping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe what they're thinking is, look, let's do it now. Let's get a new commander in chief in there now to really cement that relationship with with Zelensky. Because once the fighting starts again, and either it doesn't go well for Ukraine or even if there is catastrophic success for Ukraine, there will be so so many demands on both men once they are both subjected to the furnace of combat once again that if there's any gap in their relationship, it it could really prove very, very destructive. So I think they've made the change now. I think Zelensky's made the change now to give him months to bed in, basically, with his new military chief because they know what's to come. And just finally on this bit, David, if I I may, I was speaking about this with um, one of my contacts who's a former British infantry officer in Ukraine, advises a variety of Ukrainian special forces and and infantry units, fights alongside them as well. His opinion was that the reason Sersky is unpopular, he said the majority of the tired, unfit and fat two old men in trenches just want to sit there and smoke. They're always waiting for the next magic bullet from the West, be it armoured vehicles, guns, tanks, surface-to-air missiles, F-16s. is not like that, or is or going to demand more from them. My contact was saying that Sersky is energetic, imaginative. He has intelligent aggression. I've never heard that phrase before, but actually when I try and unpack it, that makes a lot of sense from a military point of view. My contact says that Sersky has plenty of experience, we will talk about that because of his his how he's held in many eyes for the for the huge cost of Bakhmut. But he does have experience. And importantly, he seems more willing to listen to advice internally in Ukraine and externally than perhaps the was. My contact saying what is needed now in Ukraine is a re-energized fighting spirit, better tacticians and changes to training programs. He says there are plenty of resources here in Ukraine to draw on. Alexander Sersky will make the necessary enhancements behind the flot. The flot is the FLOT, forward line of own troops, front line for sake of for sake of argument. The women and men who defend Ukraine deserve this. My contact says so. Sersky is a is a more complicated character. Potentially, he's got um, history. We'll talk about Bakhmut undoubtedly. He seems a bit of a, I won't say a cold fish, but much more straight down the line, less uh, less warm, if you like. The relationships that he has with troops is much more businesslike, I would suggest. There is a, a time for both styles of management and to be a good leader, you have to be able to draw on all different types depending on the situation, the people you're talking to and trying to get the best out of. But I think the timing is the most important bit. Why has it happened now? For the reasons I've, I've mentioned, Sersky is by no means, I mean, you don't get to the top of the tree of any military if by, be, by not having a great military knowledge. So in this regard, I mean, yes, he's been commander of land forces, but make no mistake, that doesn't mean that he hasn't got a clue what's going on in the other domains, the maritime, air, cyber, information, space, all that kind of stuff. He will have a great knowledge of, of those areas and, importantly, an opinion about how to fight best in those domains. So... Yeah, interesting to see. I'm not about to sit here and say I'm a great fanboy because I don't know the bloke, not really seen seen him in action in the at the top of the tree, but uh, yeah, a very interesting character and an interesting time to make the change, David. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Today is going to be a long podcast, isn't it? There's so much to
1: get through. So let's go now to Francis, your reaction. Then we'll go to Joe, who I know has been speaking to some soldiers, and then we'll try and move on with some other updates. But Francis Sternley, would you like to go next?
4: Well, thanks, David. As you say, I'm going to stick my neck out here
1: And say, I think the past 24 hours
4: was genuinely historic, among the most important of the entire war so far. A wake-up call on many different fronts at once. This reshuffle and its significance for the shift in strategy, which will almost certainly mean now a bloodier 2024. The extraordinary press conference of Joe Biden last night, which I'll turn to later, designed to show he's still up to the job, which has woken up many On the state of his cognitive decline. And finally, the expressions of Putin's philosophy and intentions in his interview with Tucker Carlson, shedding certain understandings of the dictator and his motivations. On all three subjects, one cannot now consider them without reference to yesterday. On the reshuffle specifically, I'll leave it to Dom and Joe to continue to reflect on the military implications. But what caught my eye was Zelensky's remarks last night that Dom referred to announcing these changes and speaking to his priorities for this coming year. He said, and I quote, I expect the following changes in the armed forces of Ukraine in the near future. A realistic, detailed action plan for the armed forces for 2024 must be presented. It must take into account the real situation on the battlefield now and the prospects. Each combat brigade on the front line must receive effective Western weapons, and there must be a fair redistribution of such weapons in favour of the first line. The logistics problems must be resolved. Avdika must not wait for the generals to find out which warehouses the drones are stuck in. Every general must know the front. If a general does not know the front, he does not serve Ukraine. The excessive and unjustified number of personnel in the headquarters must be adjusted. An effective rotation system must be established in the army. The experience of certain combat brigades of the armed forces and units of the state border guard where such systems are in place can be used as a basis. Rotations are a must. There is an obvious need to improve the quality of training for the warriors. Only trained soldiers can be on the front line. And finally, a new type of forces is being created in the structure of the armed forces, the unmanned systems forces. The first commander is to be appointed. President Zelensky there. So some of these seem, to me at least, responses to some of the comments by Zeluzhny in that now infamous essay we dissected a few weeks ago, especially on these points about the importance of weapons and logistics. The remark about every general knowing the front is also interesting. Sersky is known as being a man very much on the ground, embedded in with the troops. The opening of 2024 has been bleak indeed for Kyiv, with bombardments on the capital and waning Western support. The idea the war is in stalemate has taken root following the failed counteroffensive. There has been an apparent disconnect between the politician class of generals, like Zaluzhny, unfairly or fairly, articulate and loved by troops, yet without recent military successes, and men like Sersky, who's less political but has proven his worth in the defence of Kyiv and the Kharkiv counteroffensive. The risk is that this will see a fraying of Ukrainian society with unhappy, unhappy troops, many of them serving continuously for two years now, likely to be demoralised. And yet history is full of examples of leaders needing to remove popular generals out of military necessity. But there is evidence that Sersky is a bloodier general, as Don referenced. If that horrifies you, then it's on us. The West has not given Kyiv what it needs. Now that all it can do is prepare for new campaigns later in the year, or more likely in 2025, whilst holding off the Russians. One last thought. In a society under strain as much as Ukraine, with tensions between the political class and the military top brass, I do think it is worth commenting on this relatively smooth transition. No one was seriously talking about a military coup or some such. The photo released last night of Zeluzhny and Zelensky shaking hands and smiling was whilst no doubt concocted, a very powerful symbol. The state, as a state, remains united. This war is entering a new phase now, but I don't think it will be the last we hear of Zeluzhny.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for talking us through your thoughts there. Joe Barnes, can I come to you? You've been looking at Soski's career and also speaking to some soldiers, as I understand it, on their views of the new Ukrainian commander-in-chief.
2: Yeah, so he's a really interesting and quite divisive chap amongst the rank and file. So we could look at his past successes. He led the initial defence of Kyiv in the early sort of month, first month of the war. And and then he spearheaded the Kharkiv counteroffensive. Um So I won't go too much into detail, but essentially in Kiev, he threw away the sort of Soviet top-heavy doctrine of the generals make the decisions. No one underneath them has any sort of flexibility and basically allowed local commanders, local officers to make flexible decisions to basically try and deflect attacks from the Russians. And it worked successfully. Kiev stood and the Russians retreated back up north. They were chased through Chernihiv into Belarus and then they sort of subsided to the Donbass. Um, and then again, sort of Soviet-like, I guess, The Ukrainian army in Kharkiv, September 2022, started launching a series of probing attacks and eventually found a slight opening, a gap. And then they threw in a second echelon, a third echelon of sort of armour and infantry and pierced through and managed to essentially create this grand collapse, which became known as the Kharkiv counteroffensive, pushing Russian troops back over the Russian border and liberating swathes of land. And I remember, yeah, the great fanfare that that received. Um, But we move, which was essentially his third major campaign that he was in charge of, which, back while it didn't hold any sort of strategic value, tactical value, the Ukrainians made a political decision to hold onto it. And essentially, I think it's... 50,000 losses on the Russian side and I'm sure there are tens of thousands of losses on the Ukrainian side basically holding on to the city in something that became back, known as back holds. Uh, but yeah, let's look a little bit more at Sersky um, before I go to what some of my conversations with Ukrainian troops. So he is a classically trained Soviet general. Some describe him as a guy who is scary to hand bad news to and he essentially got that when he studied as a student at Moscow's Higher Military Command School, which is essentially the Soviet equivalent of Sandhurst, the British military officer school. He was born in the Vladimir region of Russia when it was still part of the USSR, uh, where he essentially, yeah, he versed himself in Soviet warfare before moving to Ukraine, as Don mentioned, in the 1980s. Yeah, and what's sort of interesting about that, he served in the Soviet army. Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union at that point before its independence. Uh, so he's a classically school general. Yes, he's more bloody. But I think what we can get is from speaking to the rank and file, as I've described them, sort of the everyday troops on the front line, he is rather disliked. And it's not through his sort of tactical acumen, his generalmanship. It is through his sort of, yeah, He's I guess he's a much harder character than Jaluzny, who was quite like Jaluzny saw the the worth in not holding on to a position too long um, and withdrawing to save the lives of these men and the equipment that they use, whereas uh, Sersky is seen as a guy who would hold on and almost to the bitter end. So I was speaking to one Ukrainian soldier last night whose name, for various reasons I will keep anonymous, and I asked, what do you think of the swap-around? And instantly the response was... I got a picture of three emojis of what were T-bone steaks. And I went, what does that mean? Is it red meat for the doubters? And the soldier responded, no, we are the meat and he is the butcher. For him, it's victory or death. And he and I was like, can you elaborate further? And essentially he said, look, the orders are forward, 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 go, go, go. So essentially, yes, as sort of Dom and Francis alluded to, maybe a bloodier style of fighting more uncompromising and more yet yeah, let's take the russians down with us and let's make sure that we are victorious by killing or defeating every last of one of our enemies so yeah it's interesting and then yeah i spoke to more it wasn't an isolated view others acknowledged that the move was damaging for morale at a time that ukraine needs it like it's tough out there it's you've got people um having to sign up like the first sort of echelon of of volunteers is probably exhausted. Lots of these sort of professional soldiers have been either moved up, so in command positions now, or they have been killed or wounded is the nature of such a sort of bloody conflict. So you find more people are going to be needed to recruit. So you had me beforehand, was talking about, before he sacking, was talking about a mobilisation of 500,000 men. That's going to be controversial. And lots of people are going to hear horror stories of Bakhmut. And even when I was it's been it's been a long time since I've been in Ukraine now. And I was speaking to people that were preparing for the counteroffensive as it was then. And they were saying the chief fear amongst soldiers and people volunteering or being conscripted into the Ukrainian armed forces is they're going to just get sent straight to Bakhmut or a similar meat grinder like that. With very little training, so the training thing is obviously not accurate. But that's just one of the fears that sort of surrounds society. So it's it's interesting at a time. But then on the flip side, General Sursky is an accomplished general. He's had some great campaigns under his belt. He's shown flexibility. He was he's a, a veteran of the Donbass War of 2014. He marshaled sort of 6,000 troops out to withdraw after the signing of Minsk II in I think early 2015. He was a big part of Operation Orbital, which was the original sort of UK-NATO training effort to bring Ukrainian forces up to scratch after the Donbass war and to give them extra skills. And then I guess the other thing to mention is, is much going to change? So as um, Dominic Francis was speaking, Sersky's given his first, his opening gambit on a Telegram post. He's basically given an olive branch to the rank and file, fearful of his tactics, saying that the lives of Ukraine's troops is its main value. He's gone on to speak a lot about the things that Zhluzhny was speaking about the need for iterative weapons, drones, unmanned systems, or uncrewed. I got complained that by a, a NATO official diplomat this week for calling it a drone an unmanned system rather than a uh, uncrewed system, is the PC world we live in. Um, but yeah, so uh, tactics aren't drastically going to change, but I think it's just the attitude. Is um, Sersky going to trigger another sort of back moot situation where he looks to blunt? any Russian offensive ability by really dragging them into a battle. Avdivka, that potentially is a, is a city where that could happen. It's right on the edge of being of being encircled by the Russians. Uh, sort of the updates out of it are perilous here. Mass Russian casualties. But you also hear the relentless onslaught by the Russians and the Ukrainians are suffering from ammunition and shell shortages there. So it's a really sort of desperate situation. But will Sersky order defences to hold rather than withdrawing to the second line of defence and basically looking to save and conserve manpower and ammunition there. But I'll stop there and leave it to any questions.
1: Well, thank you very much, Joe, Francis and Dom, for taking us through all of that news. Coming up, we discuss the marathon interview Russian President Vladimir Putin gave to Tucker Carlson with the Kiev Independence News Editor, Nate Ostilla. Before we get into that discussion, however... Here's a few seconds of the interview itself, just to give you a flavor of the tone of discussion.
5: One of uh, our senior United States senators from the state of New York, Chuck Schumer, said yesterday, I believe, that we have to continue to fund the Ukrainian effort or U.S. soldiers, citizens could wind up fighting there. How do you assess that?
1: Безусловно. <laughs> Well, if somebody has the desire to send regular troops that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of very serious global conflict. This is obvious. Do the United States need this? What for? Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than 33 trillion dollars. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine?
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
5: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag.
3: Say hello to Quince.
1: Francis Sturley, I'm going to come to you next. I think we've got to talk about it. We do indeed, David, we do
4: indeed. So let's get to it. The two-hour interview with Vladimir Putin. I'll start with some of the key points. There's a lot to unpack here. So Roz, who joined us on the podcast yesterday, has written up a helpful summary of key moments, and I'll run through those quickly. Putin began by offering a more than 30-minute counterfactual history lesson to a rather bemused Tucker Carlson. His interjections, how is this relevant, Mr. President, were swiftly shot down by Putin, who said, are we going to have a serious talk or a show? After a romp through history covering everything from Genghis Khan to the Roman Empire, trying to lay out his case for why Ukraine is Russian, he moved on bizarrely to offer his thoughts on the future of mankind. Mankind is currently facing many threats due to the genetic researchers. It is now possible to create this superhuman, a specialised human being, a genetically engineered athlete, scientist, military man. There are reports that Elon Musk has already had the chip implanted in the human brain in the USA. I think there's no stopping Musk. He'll do as he sees fit. He then added that an international agreement on how to regulate these things was needed to address the threat from the unbridled and uncontrolled development of AI or genetics in any other field. If you're not getting the picture yet, this was a rambling interview on a lot of different subjects. He then did get down to some of the dirtiest stuff, though. He was accusing the US of cheap provocation over its continued military aid to Kiev and warned Washington against extending that support to deploying troops in Ukraine. If somebody has the desire to send regular troops then that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of a very serious global conflict, he said. He continued that America should focus on its own domestic issues. Don't you have anything better to do? You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than $33 billion. Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia, make an agreement, already understanding the situation that is developing, realising that Russia will fight for its interests to the end? After that, he claimed that the CIA was behind the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. Asked by Carlson who blew it up, Putin replied, you, for sure. Tucker joked he must have been busy that day. Putin replied, the CIA has no such alibi. Asked whether he had evidence to support his claims, the Russian president said, I won't go into details, but you should look for someone who is interested and who has the capabilities. Putin then repeated claims that it was the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson who sabotaged a peace deal with Ukraine that was being brokered with the assistance of Turkey in the spring of 2022. Carlson asked Putin about the reports that Ukraine was prevented from negotiating a peace settlement by the former British Prime Minister acting on behalf of the Biden administration. Suffice to say, Johnson has previously vehemently denied the claims as total nonsense and said he merely expressed concerns about the nature of the potential agreement during a conversation With Zelensky. So, some of the key points there, David, but who was the intended audience? Americans who watch Tucker Carlson, most obviously, especially on that MAGA, more isolationist wing of the Republican Party. But there are also reports today that extracts are being shown in Russian classrooms. If so, I would assume it's because of that history section at the start, which plays into what textbooks now teach in schools, namely that Ukraine is not a state. Personally, I felt that what Carlson wanted Putin to say, and which he was almost steering him to say, frankly, was that the war was the West's fault due to broken promises, NATO expansion, that sort of thing. Incredibly, though, instead we saw the depth of Putin's conviction that Ukraine's history is merely Russian history. That's not anything new. He often makes these arguments and wrote that famous essay before the invasion laying out his case. But nevertheless, it was remarkable to see it relayed for so long and especially given the audience. To me, at least, based on the audience the interview afforded, it was a missed opportunity, thankfully, for the Kremlin to spread its disinformation narrative that this conflict is all due to NATO encroachment and, as such, is a sort of misunderstanding. As ever, what wasn't mentioned was as, if not more, interesting than what was. Putin didn't answer Carlson's question about whether he was satisfied with the territories he'd occupied so far. Instead, he drummed home that we haven't achieved our aims yet, because one of them is denazification. This means the prohibition of all kinds of neo Nazi movements. As Fitlana Morinets writes in her analysis of the speech for The Spectator, there are many questions Carlson should have asked Putin but didn't. Why did his army bomb a theatre in Mariupol, killing up to 600 civilians? Didn't Putin claim that he started the invasion to protect the Russian speaking population? What about mass graves in Izium and the massacre in Bucha? What about everyday missile attacks on civilian infrastructure over all of Ukraine? Carlson also didn't ask about the fates of more than 20,000 children who've been deported to Russia. He didn't question why Russia had disregarded the Minsk agreements or the Budapest memorandum. He didn't even ask about Russia's internal issues. Why has Boris Nijedzhin, the anti-war candidate, been banned from participating in the upcoming presidential elections? Why is Navalny in jail? Why are Russians who dare to protest the war immediately arrested. That's before one even gets to the question of taste, David. Whilst humour can, of course, be an effective tool employed by journalists in interviews to try and get the truth out of their interviewees, there were moments where they were laughing together, which Carlson never acknowledged before or after the interview. That, to me, personally, given the enormity of the horror of the subject, was very telling. Sadly, though, I do think that whilst no masterpiece from a Putin propaganda perspective, it has served a purpose. As ever, the medium is the message. The medium itself saying that Russia is open for dialogue. That will appeal to Republicans in Congress. That will appeal to Donald Trump. And it may even appeal to those around Joe Biden who are increasingly concerned about his mental faculties. I said at the start of the episode that yesterday was historic. I believe the remarks by the special counsel saying that he's decided not to charge President Biden for his mishandling of classified documents because he's essentially not fit to stand trial was a bombshell. As he writes, he did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. He did not even remember when his son died and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a difference of opinion with certain generals. In a case where the government must prove that Mr Biden knew he had possession of the classified Afghanistan documents after the vice presidency and chose to keep those documents, knowing he was violating the law, we expect that at trial his attorneys would emphasise these limitations in his recall. Extraordinarily, as our very own Tony Diver jumped on immediately. In a press conference designed to show he's still up to the job, Joe Biden committed another gaffe. On the Rafa crossing, he says, as you know, initially the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. Sisi is the president of Egypt, not Mexico. So a day of wake-up calls, David. But how many
1: of them are too late? Well, thank you very much. Let's go then to our guest, Nate Ostilla, news editor at the Kiev Independent, calling us from Tbilisi, I understand. Nate, you watched the whole interview. What's your reaction? And also, I'm interested in what your take on the reaction in Ukraine is as well.
5: Yeah, so first, I wanted to say thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, long-time listener. Yes, I watched the whole interview this morning after many days of, I guess, frantic speculation about what might be said in it. And I mean, I think, honestly, it was rather disappointing overall. And even from the perspective of Putin, I think, as you said, it was a missed opportunity. I mean, this was two hours that started with 30 minutes of pseudo history. And if we're to look at who is the audience for this, I mean, the interview was in English. So we would assume that the audience is the Republican Party. I, I don't understand who would be listening to that. I mean, who would be making it through this first 30 minutes and then getting to the real meat of the conversation? So I don't think that it... I mean, I don't think it was the bombshell that we all expected. I don't think Putin said anything necessarily new that he had not said before. And even Carlson displayed that he wasn't really paying attention to what Putin has said before about this pseudo history. I mean, he said he Carlson, I mean, said that the case was first made in February twenty two, twenty twenty two, 2022, not acknowledging uh, this infamous um, essay that we've discussed before. So and I guess from if we look at the perspective from Tucker Carlson, I'm not sure what he got out of this either. I mean, he was, it was pretty clear that Putin didn't take him seriously. And if you look at the reaction on on Twitter and Ukrainian media, etc, it seems like people think that Putin was mocking him, and that's what most of the memes and so on about this are about. Thats basically, Tucker Carlson was outmatched and didn't push back at all. I mean, yes, about Gershkovich and so on, but the lightest pushback that we could imagine. Yeah, it's 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 a, a lot of nonsense, really. At the end of the day, I think.
1: Nate, could I ask a little bit more about the reaction in Ukraine? Then you mentioned there the Ukrainian media. How have you and your colleagues, you know, been, been speaking about it? And I mean, you mentioned that we haven't necessarily learnt anything new. And I wondered how that might feel. The fact that, as you said, we we should know all of this, right? We should know all of this cod history, this sort of the, the, these justifications. It's been said years before.
5: Yeah, so I thought it was interesting today. I was I was reading some reactions of this, and uh, Ukrainian Pravda and some other Ukrainian media outlets call uh, Tucker Carlson the American Solovyov, uh, referring to Vladimir Solovyov, this infamous Kremlin propagandist. I'm not sure that's exactly accurate. I mean, Solovyov is a mouthpiece of of the government, and Carlson has always portrayed himself as separate, but. Generally, I think, I don't think that people ever really took him seriously in, in Ukraine. I mean, as a serious figure, not to say that we shouldn't take what he said seriously, as be, as in the fact that he's, I mean, he is influential and, and Ukrainians are aware of that. But generally, the discussion that I've, I've had and I've seen online is that basically, this is just providing Putin an opportunity to share the propaganda talking points that he said before and shared with a perhaps a willing audience of, of uh, American Republicans. But again, I don't know if, I don't know if they're really interested in listening to a 30 minute lecture on, on pseudo history. Uh, I think they wanted to hear something different that it's the West fault and so on, but that wasn't really the big takeaway
1: Thanks so much for that, Nate. I know, Dom, you just want to come in here briefly.
5: Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think
3: I think we did actually learn something new. And I, and I think that is that we learned how inflexible of mind Putin is. And that is different from being convinced of your your position and steadfast and seeing it through to the end. I think he didn't show any imagination here. And what I mean by that is that he didn't think about who the target audience was. He would have known that this was going out to this would have been picked up by many, many more people in the West, many, many more ordinary street rank and file people in the West rather than anyway, the senior levels through the diplomatic channels, blah, blah, blah. So starting off with a 30 minute history lesson, this interminable drone that went on and on and on. I mean. He wasn't thinking about how that was going to be received, and I know Carlson actually tried to step in at one point, and Putin slapped him down, didn't he? And said, "Are we are we having a are we having a proper discussion or just a, a show?" And then carried on again, and so he just he just went on, and he so he's displaying arrogance and a narcissistic tendency, which we know we know are there. That those in and of themselves n- not necessarily a bad look; they can make good telly, but the worst crime for TV, he was boring. And in this case, he was critical of the US and he was he was critical of Carlson. He spoke down to him. And I don't think that will play well with with the audience, especially not the boring bit. So I think he he just didn't think about who was going to be paying attention to his words and adjusted accordingly. If he tried to speak to the common man and the woman in Fifth Avenue and in Paris and London, all the rest of it, he absolutely didn't do that. He gave us a long rambling speech on and on like a nun's knickers. I mean it just didn't really do anything new and it would have turned off the very audience that he had a chance of trying to speak to directly.
1: Nate, would you like to add your thoughts to that? And then actually it would be quite interesting to hear some of your thoughts on what we were talking about earlier, the replacement of Zeluzny with Susky.
5: Yeah, I mean I think I think Dom is exactly correct that I mean this was a, a huge opportunity and a rare one to be able to speak directly to this space that he I mean, he really needs, he could really use. And he displayed zero awareness of that. I mean, there's many things that he could have said differently. And Tucker Carlson tried to guide him, hold his hand to get him there. And he still couldn't see that the history lesson was not the right move. But I mean, from did we learn anything about Tucker Carlson? I'm not sure. I mean, he's been saying these pro-Russian things for years. This is not anything new either. I mean, he also has always tried to portray himself as like, I want to say, he he likes to question things. And he likes to, to be cautious about the way that he says stuff to give this plausible deniability. Like, he doesn't say, oh, I think this happened. He says we don't know. And he said that about, you know, various things various Russian propaganda, talking points, the bio labs, and so on. But he always says, we don't know. And that's something that we also see in Russian propaganda, of course. I mean, that's the tagline of RT question more. And this this tactic that he often uses, not just him, of course. But yeah, I mean, uh, as a takeaway, I don't, I don't really think this event turned out to be the the thing that we thought it was going to be. And I wonder if both of them are now thinking that this was a (laughs) missed opportunity.
1: Fascinating. Thank you so much, Nate. Francis, I I realise you have a final update before we go to our final
4: thoughts. Thanks. Just very quickly, since we've covered it so much this week and for good reason. In Washington, listeners will recall our conversations about the age package for Ukraine and whether it is essentially dead in Congress. Well, last night there has been some progress with senators backing a procedural motion exceeding the threshold required in a shift that surprised people to allow the bill to advance. It doesn't mean that it is going to pass it just means that it is allowed to at least be still active and not killed stone dead no immediate word on when it will be considered passage but there is now conversations taking place about the state of the bill we'll just have to see what happens but it is not completely dead yet as ross says there were still conversations
1: taking place it seems very late last night Thank you very much, Francis. Let's go to Dom Nichols first then for your final thoughts.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. So just to round this one off, I note with interest the Kremlin says it is grateful for the influx of Putin interview requests from Western media outlets following the Carlson's interview. I mean, I will will try and ring the uh, ring again and put my name in there. They still haven't told me if I'm allowed back in the country. But anyway, never mind. But I know with interest, and thank you, Brendan, a regular listener, for sending this. In the interest of balance, Carlson says he's very interested in balance. Brendan says, does it not now make sense for Tucker Carlson to interview Mr Zelensky, as long as that can be viewed in Russia unedited? That's an interesting point, Brendan, and one I'm sure the professional journalist Tucker Carlson will be acting upon as we speak. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe Barnes, let's go to you next.
2: Yeah, I'm going to also go on the interview. And while it was a leader rambling on as much as we see Joe Biden rambling at times and finding himself a bit lost, we shouldn't actually forget the dangers of this. So while those who have watched it have seen basically a two-hour comedy show that almost looked like the film The Interview with Seth Rogen. Sorry, I'm currently being interrupted by my Shiva Inu noodles, which was inspired... It was inspired by the NAFO campaign. Um, She's biting my hand. But yeah, back to my thoughts. Um, let's not forget the dangers. So, Genevieve Holt Allen, who now works for our political team at The Telegraph, but has also been a podcast regular in days gone by or months gone by, has come out and basically reported that Nigel Farage has suggested that the West should be more open to negotiating with Russia. So, the former UKIP leader, Brexit party leader, now GB News presenter, has basically spoken on GB News about the interview. And he has said, after what was said last night, Russia is not going to stop and they're not sw- and they're switching vast amounts of their industrial production in Russia towards defence. They will never give up on this. Now we can find much of what's happening abhorrent. But the thing that shocked me all the way through has been the absolute reluctance of anyone to think, shouldn't we at least be having some form of negotiations? So look, there are going to be plenty of people who haven't even seen the interview, but they will hear sound bites. politicians, people try and jump on it. And it just opens up a space which creates doubt in basically the West's support for Ukraine at times. And I um, was at NATO the other day for a meeting of national security advisors. And after the um, meeting, Jake Sullivan, the US NSA, happily answered one of my questions. And I put it to him, what do we have to do to basically quell this Russian propaganda and basically stop this interview with Tucker Carlson reverberating into something that makes it harder for Western governments who want to support Ukraine to support Ukraine. And he said, look, we have to keep making the case that supporting Ukraine for the US, for NATO, for other Western countries and democracies is fundamental to our national securities. And so while we can, so my point is, while we can laugh at, Vladimir Putin, who came across basically a bit of a clown, this 25, 30 minute, 45 minute history lesson, which is recounted, well, Tucker Colson looked a bit bemused and not knowing what hit him. Basically, both of them looked a bit silly, but it opens the door to people and other people of influence to basically come across with maybe similar messages that suggest maybe we should only support Ukraine if they go to the negotiating table. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to basically support Ukraine so it can make its sovereign decision. And as it stands, that is the pre-war 1991 borders, which includes Crimea back. And as it stands, the West has to basically respect that. And I will stop there. Thanks for listening, folks.
1: Thank you very much, Dom. Joe, uh, Francis, would you like to go next? Well, thanks, David. Another thing that was
4: underlined for me watching the interview is the degree to which the values of the 21st century are at war with the values of the 19th. And if we don't want the values of the 19th to triumph, then we must give everything we can to Ukraine now. Speaking of history, Dom and I were just chatting about historical examples of where leaders have felt they've had to sack popular generals. And the one that most strikes me is from the American Civil War when General McClellan who was an immeasurably popular man amongst the Union forces, had to be sacked because he was deemed too cautious in how he fought. And that was despite several successes. And eventually, through going through many, many different generals, Lincoln settled on the combination of Ulysses S. Grant, who listeners will know is something of a hero of mine, and Sherman. And Sherman and Grant were also... Considered once butchers because of their strategy in how they conducted the war. Not saying that Sersky is considered a butcher, but there are certain narratives that he is a bloodier fighter in how he approaches this. The reason that Sherman and Grant were considered bloody was Grant specifically the uh, Battle of Shiloh, which was extremely bloody. I think it was the bloodiest battle ever in American history. And it was so bloody that you could combine every war that had been fought on American soil up until that time. All the people killed for the American side and it was exceeded by the number killed in one battle at Shiloh. And that was a strategic victory for Grant. But that combination, and in Sherman's situation, by the way, it was the march on Georgia, which was particularly significant for him getting that irritation But anyway, in the end, it worked. And the reason they adopted that was they wanted a shorter, bloodier war because they thought that the longer the war went on, the more horrific it would become. And they also thought that there were other risks attached to that for the union itself. So I think there are some historical parallels that can be made there, but no doubt listeners will have more thoughts on that. And just lastly, and very briefly, something we didn't really mention that was covered in the speech, and given we mentioned him so much, is the journalist from the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gaskovic. Carlson did bring up his case, and the possibility of a prisoner exchange. He said, Carlson, that he was a kid and obviously not a spy. He did stick his neck out. Putin objected to that characterization of Evan. He reiterated the Kremlin's claims. He was caught red-handed with confidential information, and but didn't seem to be completely against the idea of some kind of prisoner swap. So that will be some welcome news coming out of the interview. It's
1: nice to have something. Thank you very much Tom, Francis and Joe. Nate as our guest today, would you like the very final words?
5: Yeah, sure. Thanks uh, thanks again. I mean, I think I've I have two basic last points on on the interview. I think basically you shouldn't talk to him at all. I mean, Putin, I don't think there's any reason to have these kind of interviews. We know that he's not going to tell the truth. But in the case that you will, I mean, you have to ask hard questions. You can't be deferential like Tucker Carlson was. And if we remember last year, there was this vice interview with Maria Lvova uh, Belova, the Russia's commissioner for children's rights. And this interviewer asked some pretty tough questions. And she was still criticized for basically having the interview at all. So, I mean, that's um, I don't think that we're getting anything out of this interview that Tucker Carlson did. He didn't push him on Bucha. He didn't mention it at all. He didn't mention war crimes or anything like this. So. And the second point is that, I mean, the thing is, this was a win, the very fact that he had this interview at all. And you can see Margarita Simignon and all these propagandists, they love the fact that this interview happened. They're gloating about this on Twitter and talking about how many uh, views it got and, and so on. Because as we've discussed, I mean, the fact that Tucker Carlson is talking to him is both normalizing the discussion with Putin and even having the idea of negotiations. So these are not helpful things. And yes, even though they both came out of this interview looking quite poor and saying a lot of nonsense, uh, I think we're all worse off that this interview happened.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash UkraineTheLatest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear and Georgia Kern. And the executive producers...